Welcome to Turnpikers, the show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech scene. We're your hosts, Luke Beatty and Danny Newman. Information about this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Welcome to the newest episode of Turnpikers. Today we have Chris Marks. Welcome. Welcome. Nice to be here. Uh, I think I met... Uh, I, I don't. I'm not exactly sure. The first time I, met, I think the first time I met you was at like a venture capital in the Rockies, um, Boondoggle in Vail a long time ago. But uh, that was uh, probably ten years ago. So maybe give everybody an update on sort of uh, what you're up to now and uh, and uh, the role you're playing in sort sure. of the Denver Boulder. Sure, area. happy to do it. So. Um yeah, so I've been doing early stage venture capital here in uh, kind of Boulder, Denver area for uh, going on 15 years, I, I guess. Um, did started with a group called Tango up in Boulder, which was a private investment company during the internet um, bubble era, and uh, then we transitioned with a couple partners and raised our first external fund called High Country Venture in 2006. Uh, with the state of Colorado as our biggest limited partner. So the, the idea with that fund was invest in early-stage companies headquartered here in Colorado. Uh, I did the technology side. I partnered in life sciences. Um, and that was kind of an experiment under this venture capital authority, which was uh, a program launched by the state back in 2006. We did a second fund for them in 2010, uh, which we still continue to manage. And then... How big were those funds? Um, there, the state's commitment to us across those two funds was $50 million and we raised a little bit around them, although that was, uh, proved to be a bit of a challenge with some of the, some of the kind of peculiar features those funds had to them. So, um, and they were mandated first institutional capital into companies. So very early stage kind of seed, what would now be considered kind of seed, um, stage often just with other angel investors. Um, and those funds, uh, we like to think, have been successful. Uh, we, we will certainly increase that pool of capital for the state, which is um, significantly, and, and con- that, you know, that program should continue to go on and thrive. But about a year ago, I launched uh, a new fund as I was thinking about what I wanted to do and um, kind of where I want to take my early stage investing and just put a little bit different slant on it and, and launched a new fund called Blue Note Ventures, which is also an early stage tech-oriented uh, fund, primarily focused here in Colorado just because that's where I am and that's where I know people and that's where I've been in deal flow for years, but also, but without any restrictions, um, just tech-focused and really focused on the type of entrepreneur we invest in. So that was kind of the direction I want to take it. So that's been my project for the last year. In, in the last 15 years, yeah. would you say, how would you sort of talk about the ebb and flow of the broader sort of amount of capital, early stage capital that's, that's in the state? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's been two defining moments across it, right? One was 2001 when the internet bubble burst. And that, that was, you know, late 90s, 2000, when I was just getting into the business capital was hugely available from both local sources. Um, we had a number of kind of mid-sized funds here in the Rocky Mountain region, Boulder, Denver market. Plus we had, we're getting a lot of attention from West Coast uh, funds at that time. Uh, that was kind of one 
Um, and then the, the internet bubble burst and everything dried up, uh, as I think people who are here probably recall pretty dramatically. I mean, companies went away overnight. Um, millions of dollars in value was lost. And then that happened again in 2008. So those would be the two periods when kind of the spigot turned off. Um, in between, I think we've seen a pretty healthy ebb and flow of uh, early stage venture capital here in Colorado. I think right now we're in a decent spot. Um, I think kind of the recurring theme over those 15 years, even in the good times, is a lack of kind of mid to large size funds who can write kind of the three to five million dollar check for companies that have established traction, are real businesses, have you know, two to $10 million in revenue and really need, are in a position where they really need growth. kind of early growth capital. Um, that's always been the challenge here, continues to be the challenge here. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still a very healthy early stage market here. Why is that a challenge here? Is it low amount of big exits that kind of recapitalize the I think a area. little bit of that a little you know we haven't really had we've had um, obviously a handful of successful exits here but we haven't had the pattern of big wins that allows funds to establish follow-on funds successful track records allow them to go out and raise follow-on funds even when the market's not great right and that's really I mean on the west coast they've been through the same ups and downs but you know Sequoias of the world have still raised their new funds in down markets. Here, when the internet bubble burst, a number of great funds just went away. And they were on their second, third, fourth funds. I mean, SQL Venture Partners. And, you know, there, there was a whole kind of era of funds that just dried up and went away. And I think, you know, and that happened again kind of in the 2008-2009 um, time frame. And I, and I think that we just really haven't been able to cultivate those long standing, successful, mid- and large-sized funds. How much early-stage capital would you say is in the state right now that is available to the average startup, regardless of the vertical? Just would you say, what, the, what does the pool look like now? If you were to put your best guess out there. You mean on a, on a number, from a number On a number basis. Wow. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't have those numbers at my fingertips. I would say this, though. I would say that, you know, another real noticeable trend over the course of the last 10 to 15 years is companies raise a lot less early, right? It used to be the first money companies would raise would be one to five million, you know, and that was what it took to get a tech company started. You had to build everything from scratch. Today, companies are raising half a million dollars and it's taking them 12 to 18 months. Um, so a, the combination of being able to do more with less and, well, our ecosystem hasn't necessarily supported big funds. There's been a tremendous amount of wealth created among individuals. And so the angel, I think the angel investing market and the early seed stage fund, I think, you know, funds that have kind of 10 to $25 million under management and are doing deals of 50K to 250K is very healthy for the size market we have. And there's a lot of options for, for companies, both in the tech space and, and other markets. Um, a lot of angel activity, disproportionate, I think, for the size of our market still, even with some of the bumps we've hit in the road. So I don't know the number, but I think, I think that's part of why the lack of mid-stage capital is so 
accentuated is because so much is getting funded early. Quite frankly, probably a lot of companies that shouldn't get funded are getting funded early, which is, is great. I mean, there's, it's great that they get a shot, but they, we're seeing a ton of companies get seed funded. Smaller funds like us have been able to move upstream a little and watch them a little bit more because they, they get that it's great for you. dollar. Yeah, it's great for us. Um, so I, I think there's no real shortage of that early stage money, but I, I'm hesitant to put a number on it. Do you, now, from a chicken and egg perspective, do you think it's, you know, one of the things that I feel like is that we, our biggest problem here is not, if, if we had a problem, uh, is just the fact that there are, we've sort of turned into this hobbyist kind of culture of yeah. everybody has a startup and if you don't have a startup, then you just had one five minutes ago and, and yeah, no, there's, totally. there's n n very little employee base that's been at a mezzanine level company or even yes. a big company. And it's just this, you know, and I, as an angel investor myself, it's sort of, I see the same people all the time and they're right, just yeah. now at some other place and it's kind of like a, um, a little bit of a gerbil cage. Um, from that perspective, but I, I don't ever feel like I understand whether that's just the culture of who we are or that's because we don't fund those, those mid-level companies right? and they, and so they either move or they are incentivized to, you know, we also have a, a high proportion of companies that will raise a seed round, maybe an A round and sell the company for $10 million. Right. Right. Which is. The, the economics behind that are shockingly healthy yep. for everybody, employees on down. Yes. And for early stage investors, like you're talking about, where we have a lot of these sort of, whether they're in a fund or they're just independent angels, that works out great for them too, right? Because right. They, they weren't going to be able to participate should the company have been able to raise a B round in three or four or five years anyway. So yes. Yeah, it is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. I, I'm not sure the answer, but I think investors here, and there's always exceptions, and, and you know, we allocate in our portfolio, we know every deal is not, on the West Coast, the mentality to generalize is every deal's got to be a swing for the fences, you know, this needs to be a billion dollar opportunity, all that standard VC stuff. Here, there's not because we've all, those of us who've been doing it for a while have had success in the, in the small early stage exits like you're talking about, and those are much easier to get done in our market. There is a, a reality to the fact that once companies get to a certain point, the number of potential acquirers goes down, right? And the companies that can spend you know, 50, 100, 200 million dollars to acquire companies is a lot smaller pool. So you're kind of in it for the long haul and with the financing risk here, uh, a lot of companies do elect to just just uh, you know go the M and A route early. Now, with that being said, I I think that we're in a stage right now with a handful of companies that have really established themselves as bigger, real winners in their sectors. Um, people who have real institutional history at companies now that have grown to you know hundred million dollar plus revenue companies. You know. 300 to 500 employees um, that are really going to be real companies on the Colorado landscape for years to come. And it only takes a handful of those, you know, to really start seeing those employees, those entrepreneurs cycle back into the economy with that kind of institutional knowledge to, I think, start changing the, the complexion. That's sort of, of what it. you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, we, we've seen that. We've been 
lucky enough, one of the first companies we invested in out of out of our high country venture fund was Logarithm, which I mean, you know, the security, log data management and security at that point in time was not a huge thriving space. You know, it's really growing and it hasn't necessarily been the Silicon Valley growth pattern, but here it is 10 years later, you know, 350 employees, international footprint, headquartered in Boulder, you know, still experiencing really strong growth. And, um, you know, those are the kind of companies that, that are going to help change the, the overall dynamic here, I think. Talk about uh, some of the, um, from, the, from the people side, what do you think is unique about this environment? from an entrepreneur, founder, getting staffed up and teamed up, sort of, what, what do you think is, is unique about this place? Some of, our, some of the people who have been on the show talk about, uh, you know, uh, maybe gender equity being something that is probably more, um, more visible and viable of a, uh, of a, of a thing to, to lean your hat on or hang your hat on. Uh, other people seem to think that... Um, that the talent is easier to retain. Um, what's your, what, what do you, what um, do you find? Yeah, I, I think all that's true. I mean, I think in a sense, this market is a kinder, gentler market from an employee perspective. I think, you know, people from uh, um, gender equality, from a, a kind of just overall culture focus, quality of life focus. I mean, clearly a lot of people live here because they've elected to live here because it's a quality of life, which goes a little bit to your, are these people really in it for the entrepreneurial adventure or are they hobbyists trying to figure out how to fill their days so they can do other stuff? And it's some combination, right? I mean, but I, I would say that it's, you know, the overall pool of talent here has definitely increased, but it's still strained just like everywhere else i think again having people i know a lot of people you know you all know you you guys both know a lot of people who've worked at a lot of early stage companies that have never really worked for a company that's gotten to you know that real growth growth stage of scaling a business um again i think you know a few more of those we're gonna have a lot more of that knowledge in our workforce right now we've got a decent workforce it feels transient, but I think relative to what you see out on the coast, it's not transient. It's easier to retain a lot of people here, you know, in terms of demands on salary and benefits are much more reasonable. People want to know, you know, that they're going to get paid, that they're going to get a little piece of the company, that they're going to have health insurance, that they can wear their headphones at work, that they can, there's going to be, you know, cold beer in the fridge on Friday afternoon. And, you know, that's part of it here. Um, and I think a lot of people, a lot of the founders and entrepreneurs here really want to build great companies. I mean, they really want to build companies that have a culture that they can be proud of. And that's why I love investing here is because those companies do not have trouble retaining employees. And I think the companies that start here in Colorado, a higher proportion of them are built that way, or at least with that goal. And so I think, you know, that's, that's what it takes. And that's kind of one of the investment theses of my fund is, those are the type of leaders, those are the type of cultures I think are more likely to be successful, and those are the ones that we want to get behind. That's a unique concept. That's, that's bigger than just getting behind entrepreneurs. Right. Yeah. Everybody says they're getting behind entrepreneurs. Right. And I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's unique. The idea that you're 
you know, everybody, especially in early stage companies, says they're investing in the entrepreneur because the plan's always going to change anyway. Right. But um, but getting behind entrepreneurs that that feel like they can build a meaningful culture that can retain people is is kind of a an, an interesting proposition. Yeah, I mean, our our feeling and, and my feeling. People collectors. Yeah, right. And and when I what I did when I. It was kind of a two-sided equation when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. One is I went out and talked to a bunch of entrepreneurs that I had worked with and invested in and been in the trenches with and said, you know, what did I do that was actually helpful and what was totally not? You know, what did I, where did I fall into kind of the general trap? So I got a lot of feedback on, I think, how investors can and can't be helpful. But then also... You know, I, I, sur- I kind of looked back at all the companies we've been involved with and the ones that have been really successful, um, and that doesn't always mean a successful exit, but really built companies that we were proud of, that survived some tough times, that even if they shut down, they shut down the right way, that people are still proud to say, hey, I worked there, I was a member of that team. And, and really, the, there was this tremendous overlap of qualities in those companies and those cultures. There was transparency. There was, you know, everyone knew what was going on for better or for worse. There was uh, open communication, you know, so decisions could get made quickly. There was um, a focus on culture. There was real passion about what they were doing. They weren't just doing it for the paycheck. They had kind of bought into the founders, you know, Every founder has this, like, why they're putting themselves through this. And the people who were there and part of the early culture were really bought into that. And so we just tried to take that and kind of form it into more of an investment thesis. You know, and I'll tell you in five, ten years if it actually worked. But the idea being, I think that those companies are much more likely to succeed because they retain people, because they um, make better decisions, because... You know, people feel like they're part of it because you know all the th- all the reasons you you would think. So yeah, I'm kind of just sitting back here thinking, you know, kind of playing this whole thing out, and it, you know, where we are now, we've got this, uh, you know, sort of a hobbyist type culture. Yeah. Obviously, just a huge amount of funding in the uh, in the seed stage, but you know, kind of uh, playing off of what you're what you're talking about, you really are setting up these these networks and these communities of people who really have kind of built these amazing relationships kind of both in and out of the uh, uh, startup scene. And it really does and will play off and, and pay off in a really big way in, you know, w- when we do have one of these breakout success companies that really yeah. are, you know, able to get and retain like every, you know, these, these you know, the, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the, right. you know, that size of a, of a company, you've kind of got these, these little nodes and these little networks that we're, that we are creating that work well together that, you know, are able to really see all sides of it. So it, yeah, kind of hearing it from that perspective, you, you're creating some things that will really pay off in the future. It's, you know, we're, we're not seeing a lot of that yet. And, you know, getting to that right. series A, series B kind of stage, really, you know, we're, we're not seeing a lot of those, but you're setting up a lot of good stuff for when that does come. The, yeah. Uh, one thing that I admire most about your portfolio is that I feel like it is a very, um, for, especially for out here, um, I feel like it's a very like patient money portfolio. Like you have a lot of companies that you have made early, early stages commitments to and been able to um, keep growing and evolving and sticking with them and 
Yeah. You know, sometimes that sometimes that's just the way it works out. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> it's because those are the founders that you have, which are you know right. I'm not selling the company anytime soon because right. I'm in it for the long haul, or I'm just in it because we're we have a million things to do and we can only do. 10 a year, so it'll be a long haul. And then there's other ones where it's because of the LPs, and the LPs have the intestinal fortitude to want to, your LPs, want to stick it out. So what would you credit that to? Because I think when I think about the stuff that you've done, that's what sticks out to me most, whether Logarithm's a good example, Full Contact's a good example, Compose, like those guys have been around, yeah. you know, moving, you know, moving product for a long time, steadily growing, you know, awesome founders, you know, all, all that, you know, but they're not, yeah. you know, they're not a turn and burn situation. Right. Well, um, yeah, a little bit of everything. There's never, I mean, Again, it was I was looking back at those founders as I was deciding what I wanted to do going forward, and and a lot of what I you know is I was modeling the type of investments I wanted to make going forward. I mean, a lot of it is because of the focus on kind of more B two B type businesses. So, I mean, we've tried to do consumer facing stuff, we just haven't done it very well. So they're not still on our portfolio page, quite sure. frankly, <laughs> um, because and what I learned early on, and and part of the part of the whole thing about this for all of us or whatever we're doing is like being honest with yourself, right? And trying to figure out what you can do well and what you can't, which is sometimes a, a tough process to take yourself through yourself through. But I mean, those were the problems that I was able to identify and was able to see how a solution would work and, and maybe be able to have a little bit more input with the founders and the entrepreneur in terms of helping steer their business in those early days. Um, Combined with that, we've been lucky to have, I mean, the state, when they launched the Venture Capital Authority and became our biggest limited partner, everyone said, oh, my gosh, you're going to be working with the state. That's going to be such a pain. Well, it turns out, it turns out they were actually a great have LP. Some money. Yeah, they had money, and um, really they had very um, different expectations. They were in it for economic development, for job creation. They were taking a very long-term approach, um, you know, they just didn't want us to embarrass them. You know, the bars were set in different places, which allowed us to play the long game with those portfolios a little bit more maybe than we could have before. And the first time we returned them capital, they thought, wow, this is great. And you're going to return capital? That's awesome. Yeah, so, I've never heard of that. Uh, <laughs> so they've, part of it's been the LPs for sure. And and I think, you know, the, the point that I think is the biggest is just that's the type of entrepreneur who really wants to succeed. They really want to solve the problem they're setting out to solve, right? I mean, you guys have both, been there and, and done that so you get it but it's like if you're not really driven to do that and to build a great company to serve your customers and stuff it's just not going to work long term right you're going to figure out a way to get out of it at some point yeah. um so most of it would just be the type of entrepreneur i think what so we've been asking people what is something that that you get that you don't think other people get and and vice versa, which is something that other people seem to get that you don't really get, whether it's a a technology or a, a behavior pattern or a trend or a philosophy around all the things that exist in our world. What is something that, that, that you get that other people don't and vice versa, would you say? Like what, what makes you look and say like, how is this, why is everybody doing that? I, I, don't, I yeah. don't see that. Yeah, well, I would say as I referenced, the, the consumer-facing piece is my, is my, I never get why those things become successful that yep. do and why others do not. 
Yeah. Uh, my uh, focus group of one is not a strong proxy for that, I've determined. Yeah. Um, Would you say is, is why the ones that work work or, yeah. or why people put money towards it? Both. Both. I yeah. just, I, I just, I'm mission. like a fish swimming upstream in that world. I'm like, yeah. really? Yeah. That? And then off, you know, off it goes. So I've, I've, uh, I think that that's a, str- uh, a struggle for me. I think what I get, you know, I think I wouldn't say that there's any great insight there other than if you do this long enough, like anything, it's really just pattern recognition. There's just no question. I mean, every company is totally different. Every founder and entrepreneur is totally different. But there is no question in building early stage businesses and building B2B SaaS companies, how products are received in the market, consumer engagement and behavior on with the product, um, you know, all the things you see over and over again, right down to hiring, employee turnover, Signs that things are wrong in the culture. Signs that things are right. I mean, you just see them enough um, that it really just comes down to pattern recognition and your ability to go to the entrepreneurs you're working with and say, "Hey, I think I've seen this before." You know, and have them and, buy it. And maybe I'm seeing it a little earlier than you are. So why don't we check into this and see if if maybe this is you know a harbinger of something to come? And I think as an investor, an early stage investor, that's one of the few things you hopefully can really do. I mean, I would encourage entrepreneurs to look for investors who, who they think have, have the experience to be able to throw some of those flags out there. Certainly not always right, but so much of what we do is pattern recognition. On, on that note, what, is, uh, what are some kind of advice for, for entrepreneurs that are kind of maybe very first going out and, and thinking about raising money? What's the advice to them on you know, who they're looking for, how they find either angels or VC or what type of uh, fundraising they're doing? Um, what, what's the, the process there that you see as successful? I, I, I don't, again, I don't know that there's a one strategy fits all because I think first and foremost, I would say don't raise money until you absolutely have to. That's, I think, part of, if we were kind of picking at some of the problems with our uh, ecosystem here and our hobbyist culture, everyone thinks they have to go raise venture, like that that validates what they're doing somehow, which I think is the exact, even as someone who makes money off people wanting to raise money, it's just the wrong mindset. I think it should be flipped and it should be, if I need to raise money is, you know, what do I, where should I go find it? Um, So first thing is, you know, I generally try and spend the first five or 10 minutes I meet with someone talking about raising money altogether um, just because it's, it creates such a, generally bad dynamic that you need to overcome. Companies overcome it, but it's just a bad dynamic. Uh, beyond that, uh, for really early stage people, I always say, you know, you're not going to win or lose on your seed deal. So don't, like, if capital's available, if you have a bunch of angels lined up, whatever, if, you know, I just, see, down. Yeah, I just see too many people, you know, especially in this market where things can get a little frothy and valuations here are not what they're reading about and tech crunch and everything. You know, and they're trying to win on the difference between a $5 million and a $6 million pre-money valuation. If your company's successful, it's not going to matter either way. And I'm not no saying that just to be self-serving. themselves in the face about what they did on their angel Exactly. The, the more important thing is get your business financed. Give it another 12 to 18 months. Give yourself time to figure out. 
how to solve some of these problems and get beyond it. Um, because fundraising can create a bad dynamic. It can also consume a ton of time. And, um, and then I think as you move up and you're raising bigger chunks of capital and you're selling larger parts of your company and you're bringing on investors who are going to be more involved as board members and advocates and networkers for you and champions for your product and evangelists out there in the ecosystem, really look for ones who are going to do that. You know, and, and we don't all do it the same. I mean, some VCs are great because of their network. Some VCs are great because you can go sit down with them and say, I got this problem. Can you help me solve it? And you know they're not going to beat you over the head with it. So every, you know, different VCs have different strengths and different, um, different weaknesses. So if you, if you have the luxury of choosing, choose well. Last question for me. You know, if you have the sort of recipe that you have, which is, you know, finding finding VC or f finding uh, entrepreneurs who will play a long game yep. that will uh, also uh, get behind some of the um, I've seen this traffic situation before and I recommend that we reroute the car a little bit uh, yep. what are the things that you would say to to the younger or new entrepreneurs who who are resistant to those conversations because we that's sort of like the the rubber hits the road thing, which is right. you know some VCs respond to that by throwing an associate at you, so that it looks like there's just another you know twenty uh, five year old that you can talk to about the problem. Right. Some people throw more money at the problem. Some people throw a give you a, just give you the silent treatment, tell you that we're sort of if you're not going to listen, sort of what what if you know you 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 run much more of a intimate boutique kind of shop right. so you are the people that you've been looking for to solve that problem right right what do you what is your what are some of your dance moves as you try to deal with that because sometimes it's 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 entrepreneurs are just young sometimes it's a personality thing right, sometimes right. it's a market thing like it can be a million different reasons why you get there and you're always going to get there if the company especially if you've had patient money and there's ups and downs and yeah. it's lasted more than a year and a half you're going to have those conversations what are what are the sort of coping skills that you see that work on both sides of that equation, either from yeah. your seat or from? Well, I think um, from the investor's standpoint, you know, one of the reasons I'm so adamant about investing in people who create kind of cultures of transparency and trust is because it tends to also mirror itself on the relationship with the investors, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's super important to me. I, as I was, again, thinking about what to do with Blue Note, um, the pattern that I saw with myself and young entrepreneurs was this, we'd make an investment, I would have all these touch points with them. How's it going? Great. How's it going? Great. How's it going? Everything's awesome. We're crushing it. It's so great. great. And then one day, holy shit, the world is ending tomorrow. And it's too late, right? I can't help and I missed it and somehow I wasn't available or they, you know, and... So it gets it, awkward real fast. It gets awkward real fast, and there's limited solutions at that point, right? So one of the things I've tried to really commit to in this stage of my investing career is breaking that cycle really early, right? So it's in diligence, trying to understand, hey, is this an entrepreneur who is going to be transparent and honest so I can actually add value, understand the business, know where I can help? And, and I think that 
from an entrepreneur's standpoint, in the early stages in particular, you really, you know, if I haven't had that ongoing dialogue with them, when I come to them and say, oh, hey, by the way, I've seen this pattern and I think you need to, we need to think about moving, you know, or go to market strategy this direction a little bit. They'll be like, why? Why should I, you know, you need, it's a, it, it's a two-way building of trust and ongoing dialogue that gets you to those points of, Hey, you know, Small, the last couple of times we've together. talked, I've, I've kind of noticed that you're, you're telling me this or, you know, in the weekly report, I'm seeing this numbers, you know, you got to be, your head's got to be in it to even warrant making those comments or suggestions. So, you know, as an early stage guy, as a more boutique fund, I can afford to do that in those early stages. I know it's not always reality, but I think entrepreneurs who really want to get the most out of their investors should try to establish those, uh, lines of communication early because we don't expect everything to be perfect in your business. And so the front of everything's perfect is not, you're not doing, you know, you're, you're not, uh, it's not helpful. So, or believable sometimes or believable sometimes. And, you know, shame on me as I looked back for being okay with that and moving on to the next one. It's a two way street, right? So, uh, anyway, that's, that's part of it. I think that's great. Well, thanks for coming on. It's bluenotevc.com. Bluenotevc.com. People yeah. can check it out there. Uh, and any other ways you'd like to have people get in touch with you? No, that's it. I mean, you can get in touch with me through the website, and I'm up in Boulder, and uh, doors always open, so feel free. And I really appreciate what you guys are doing for the community and the ecosystem. And uh, it's great, and a great platform. And thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, great. It's really great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Turnpikers, recorded at Postmodern Company in downtown Denver. More information on this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Reach out with questions and recommend future guests. 